Welcome to the Soup is On podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Cook, superintendent of Ben Lapine Schools. On the Soup is On podcast, we talk about all things public education, specifically as they relate to our Ben Lapine Schools and the greater community here in Central Oregon. Today, I'm happy to welcome two guests to dive into a, a very serious topic that we're dealing with currently in our schools. One that I think is going to be both hard for us to talk about and also both really important for us to discuss. We're not going to be able to come up with all the solutions during our 35 minutes here. We are specifically going to be digging into bias incidences, how we handle student discipline, and how we strive to create a safe and welcoming school for every one of our students uh, in all 33 of our schools across the district. And so joining me today, our Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Kinsey Martin, and Assistant Director of Student Services, Eric Powell. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So Kinsey, this is actually your second time on the podcast for our listeners that heard you maybe the first time. Maybe you give a review of who you are and what you do for the district um, before we get started. My name is Kinsey Martin. I am the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Ben Lapine Schools, which means in a nutshell, if that's possible, that I support our students, families, and staff in co-design systems improvement to better meet the needs and strengths of our priority populations. So thank you, Kenzie. This is work that, that we're working on together actually quite a bit. And uh, on your first time on the podcast, we actually were talking about legislation from the state. Is it being enacted through policy through our, our system? And many of our listeners have heard about it. It's called the Every Student Belongs Policy and State Law that essentially creates safe spaces in our schools and, and prevents acts of hate from impacting our students or that enforces that, that schools have to address those. And so this conversation will actually extend from that one a little bit. Eric, we're glad to have you on the show. We're excited you're here. Um, You help oversee kind of student discipline and how we help with training with staff and how we handle incidences when when students maybe have an issue with rules or or those kinds of things. Why don't you talk just a little bit about your your history with the district, this role, and what brings you to this position? Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I'm actually a product of Ben Lapine Schools, so I went to school here, High Desert Middle School, Cascade, and then Mountain View, but for me, when I started in the district as a counselor and then dean of students and assistant principal, I really wanted everything I did to be about trying to serve our community. And so in this new role as assistant director of student services, we're really just trying to serve our students, families, and staff that are going through you know difficult times. Or maybe if a student has made a mistake, how can we help them move forward from that mistake and things like that. But as you know, you and I are both new in these roles this year. There's a lot of awesome and positive work that we can do to kind of set a really strong foundation in my work for restorative practices on how we build relationships with our community, with our students, and and make sure our policy and our procedures reflect that. So really exciting times and a lot of work, but really happy to be here. Thank you. And we're going to talk, you mentioned restorative practices, and I just wanted to let our listeners know we're going to actually go deeply into that. So we'll we'll clarify any questions you might have. And I think this conversation is due for us. I think it's important for us to take on. This is a really challenging subject to talk about. It's on the minds of a lot of our families and a lot of our students right now. We're having concerns rise to the district level because of the, the number of incidents of, of, of racism and other bias incidences taking place in our schools. It's discouraging. It's disheartening, and I know none of us approve or support any act of hate in our schools and any act that's going to create challenges for other students feeling like their sense of safety or belonging in our schools is being challenged. And so I just want to make sure that everyone understands how deeply committed we are to improving the conditions and that we're working hard to make sure that all our staff are appropriately trained and every one of our students can have a positive experience in our schools. So with that, let's get to our topic. Okay, so we're going to be talking 
talking about bias incidences, and that might be a new term for some people. So, um, Kinsey, would you mind starting off with just helping us learn exactly what a bias incident is? Sure. I won't go into, I think in our last episode on this topic, we went more in depth on what is bias itself. So I guess I'd recommend starting back there if, um, if you missed that piece. A bias incident, though, is behavior that stereotypes or mocks or degrades, for example, another individual on the basis of an identity factor like race, um, sexual orientation, religion, ability, uh, etc. And is very often something that is not intended necessarily. The focus on a bias incident is on the harm that it caused. I like to think about this one as driving a car when you accidentally back into someone else's car with your car that, you know, it very well may have been a mistake. Um, You maybe didn't see the person didn't know, and yet you still have the responsibility to uh, repair the other person's car and make sure that it doesn't happen again. And so that is the closest equivalent that that I can come up with as far as a, a biased incident and how we are approaching this work. Okay, so Eric, I want to I want to follow up on what, what Kinsey just stated about we have a highly specific process for bias incidences, but this is just one of many ways that students can break rules in schools, if you will, and we have an, an entire discipline code that students are expected to to oblige by in our schools. First of all, why why would we separate bias incidences from any other type of discipline incident in our schools? And and secondly, is that necessary? Because I can think of lots of things that happen in schools that are very serious. So why the separate treatment, I think, is a good question. Yeah, and I think my answer will start with maybe my personal opinion on that. I think it'll align with with where we're going is for us we need to understand that the impact on victims of these incidents it's it's huge impact and and we have to make sure we're addressing it appropriately and accounting for and protecting victims of these incidents and so for the nature of how how intense these things can be we we need to separate that and and make sure we're we're being thoughtful of that i I think there's a range of discipline issues that are very significant um, and i think bias incidents are something that have a really invisible impact on students, but that are as important as larger physical safety concerns um, as far as mental health and outcomes that students might have. So yes, I think they are, are just as significant as many of our other more traditionally recognized disciplines. Kinsey, I love what you said, and I, having been an administrator and you deal with various types of incidents that occur, deal with sexual harassment, or if a student would have a racial incident occur against them, there's a level of like, respect and honor that that situation deserves because that can really hurt someone long term and and I think it I think it is different to be honest so I'm I'm glad that we are giving it that level of just that level what I'm hearing from you both is that they aren't all but they can be yeah. very very mm-hmm. impactful and part of what we're working with in this new reporting system is making sure we hear about all of them so that there's no way that a very impactful one or a very meaningful one gets overlooked And I would just add, making sure that our staff are aware of that nuance and that we aren't the ones necessarily deciding what is and isn't impactful to a student, that that is the student's decision and that we uh, follow their lead as far as the significance and impact on them. At the end of the day, for us as adults and leaders, 
the physical safety of our kids is paramount. People trust us to send their kids to our schools, and our job as school leaders and administrators is to make sure that kids are physically safe and we're dealing with those things. And we're at a point now where we're also elevating these serious events to the level that they need to be addressed as well. So I think it's a both. And Kinsey, I don't know mm-hmm. if you have anything you want to add. but Yeah, I, I agree that um, you know we have existing safety measures and expectations in place for some of those um, physical safety examples you mentioned. The state is now, um, with the new legislation, not asking us to, requiring us to also prioritize the mental well-being of our students, especially those who are experiencing this level of bias. So it's a adding to, not a replacing safety. Thank you for that clarification. Okay, so um, let's talk about perspective for like from the lens of a staff member. We have roughly 2,400 employees and staff in our school district. Most of those staff are in our schools. A staff member, here's an incident. Here's one kid call another kid a name, for example. It, just during a conversation in the hallway, what do we want them to do? What does that look like? What happens when a staff member overhears something like that? What's our expectation now? To do something. The expectation is is to to do something. Much like we train our students and teach them, you know, if you see something, say something, campaign as far as, again, you know, physical safety trainings for students, it's the same approach. That if you see something that um, is related to bias or hate, speak up, say something, interrupt, even if you don't quite know what to say in the moment, say something. So um, we are we are uh, setting that expectation with our staff and then also providing training and support on, well, what do I say? How do I respond? How do I know if it was a bias incident? And then what do I do next? So that training is happening for our staff. But the most important thing is to just not let it go. So students, you know, like what about our students? I, I just think about not every interaction between students is in front of an adult. What do we want to tell to our families and listeners about what supports we have in place for students that might be a victim or might be a bystander when somebody is a victim? What should they do in these kinds of incidences? Eric? Kinsey said this really well, but I I think when these things occur, we just want anyone to interrupt what's going on. And I I think we need to continue to coach our students up on, you know, you see something, let's let's do something about it. Like if, if your friend or someone near you is experiencing something like this, we need to interrupt that and let people know that that's not okay. And we have so many students that are brave and and willing to stand up for the the rights of others and and we've seen that in our district and so for me it just goes back to that interruption because these things occur and and we need to be strong enough and empower our students to be strong enough to also interrupt when that occurs too. So if a parent is listening to this right now and their kid is coming home and saying yeah I had an issue again today with another student and the parent is concerned or worried about their student what should we tell them to do? That's quite frankly that's the, the the frustration of parents that I'm hearing from is that the adults aren't doing enough to keep my kids safe, emotionally safe, physically safe, all of those things. What would we suggest that they do in those situations? I tell my own, I have three kids in schools too, and I tell them, you know, you're going to try to do your best to kind of help in a situation, but you're going to go to the nearest adult and talk to them about what you're seeing. It's not a good choice to just ignore something or let it go, but we're going to talk to the adults in the building and trust that they'll they'll do a good job to, to intervene. And I would just add that if a family has a concern to reach out, to call the school office, ask to speak with the teacher or counselor, principal. Our families have a right to to know and confirm that their students are safe in our schools and that we are responding appropriately. So if there is a question um, or if a student comes home sharing a story that sounds concerning, I think I speak for all of our schools and I say, please reach out. And um, we would never want a family to feel unsure. I'd like to shift gears a little bit into the reporting process. I think part of what uh, we, we instituted this 
reporting process this year is to try to create a much more systemic manner in which we're going to be able to address these. And and we and I heard both of you use the word trust or trusted adult. I think that's something I want us to think about in the back of the back of our mind as we start talking about how we're going to how we're going to institute this reporting process, what its purpose is for and how how we intend to use the data so that we can make for a better experience with our kids. So let's start with first of all, this is new this year. Why did we put it in place? Sure. We um, we have tried over the past couple of years to we've been building some infrastructure to be able to have a, a reporting process. And so our current version is essentially when an incident happens, uh, what we've been trying this first semester has been having our staff put the report in and do the, you know, the investigation and follow up in partnership with, you know, several of our our district team members and community partner members when um, the response allows. And so we've been, we saw after the first semester of trying out this new approach and, and looking as a team at the data and just the system itself, we felt that the next step was to make sure that all staff, you know, open it up, make sure all staff are aware of how to make the reports themselves versus, you know, sharing it with a a principal. So we've expanded access to all of our staff at this point. We are about to roll out and start trying out some lessons for students around bias. What is bias? Why does it matter? How do we interrupt when it happens when to us or to someone else? And then um, most importantly, maybe is how do we report it? And that involves currently that involves reaching out to a safe and trusted adult, whether that is uh, hopefully someone in the building that the staff or that the student can connect with and share about the incident, who can then initiate the investigation and support process, and also do the the data entry into our reporting system, or to let a family member know. And when the family reaches out to us, then we will um, undertake that same process. Okay, Kenzie. So let's dig into the bias reports we've received so far this year. How many total bias incidences have been reported this school year? Without having the the numbers right in front of me, I can tell you that we've had over 160 reports made this year of different bias incidents, uh, which is a really significant number and um, and you know devastating to us as an as a learning community. Um, that is not the experience we want to offer our students and families and staff members, and it is something that we definitely feel needs urgent attention and uh, and change. It's really disheartening to. Know that that our students are having that many experiences um, that they've reported to us and we are definitely um, committed to changing each of these whether they are incidents of race-based uh, bias or bias on the basis of religion or immigration status or um, LGBTQ identification all of them are um, are significant and uh, you know we anticipate that as we get better at this process as we earn the trust of our community that the reports um, that number might actually increase while we see while students in fact see us responding better each time and so we know that um, this will be a process but we are committed to decreasing that number our goal is not to have anyone experience this in our schools I think I want to answer that as well as to just reiterating what you just said. One of these is one too many. And I think it's important for us to honor and recognize that at the basis of every one of these is a student in our system that experienced trauma uh, in that interaction. And that's those are the ones we know of. How many of these are not being reported because it's a new process, a new system? 
and we're digging into building a structure and digging into what it takes for us to systemically root this out so that it is no longer just a, a reaction for the adults to respond after an event like this happens, but it shines a light on these as they happen. It brings attention to them. It, we build effective responses with these. And I think it's just so crucial to keep in mind that we don't ever want our students to experience this for any reason and for any uh, set of circumstances. And, and I appreciate your focus on the fact that there are lots of different ways it can happen and the fact that we know it's an, as a new process that it's going to be something that we work through. But I just so disappointed that we have to find a way to make sure that our students actually feel empowered and safe in our schools. And to hear numbers like that is very disheartening. And so I think coming back to this topic, maybe at a future date and talking with our students about what that feels like is going to be something that we have to do. As we talk about how to address this and how to create schools and, and uh, classrooms that are places where kids are embraced and cared for and feel physically and emotionally safe, um, are we finding out that we're not addressing these issues or are we finding out that something other? Yeah, I, I think that um, a couple things come to mind and it, it feels hard to um, identify sometimes the positive angles of this work because um, we do have a lot of work to do and um, and it is really, um, they are really heavy, tough experiences for students and families and, and sometimes staff members are either victims or offenders in different ways and so it can be hard but a couple things Things that come to mind. First, the conversation that is really taking root in our system between staff members. A lot of teachers and principals and staff asking, reaching out and asking for resource support partnership, um, both from, from colleagues and also from community partners. And so I think that's an exciting um, step in the right direction as far as our awareness and response. And then just a, one example, I guess, that I will share of a specific incident, we had a situation in one of our schools that involved some anti-Jewish sentiment, and that is certainly ties directly back to our Every Student Belongs legislation as far as hate symbols and prohibiting those on our campuses. And a, a difficult situation, but we were able to share with the family some um, resources and suggestions for, the, excuse me, the family of the offending student who knew that what they had done was not right, not the right thing to do but wasn't fully aware of the history and impact of what they were communicating. And so we had shared some resources with the family, some movies to watch at home and some discussion prompts. And the family shared afterwards that it was really impactful for them that they had some great discussions together as a family. And so it feels good to know that our community is, is interested in engaging in this work together. Okay, so let's say uh, an incident happens, a student calls another student a racial slur, staff member overhears it, sends student to the, the, the office, files and makes a, a bias incident report. Now what? What happens? What's the follow-up and how do we address that? The first part of this response is sort of a, a caveat that each one of these incidents is very, is very different and we try really hard to individualize the response to the, the situation. So um, it's kind of hard to respond to, but typically when a response gets put into our reporting system, often those are incidents that are sort of just happened that the building is beginning to investigate and they they put it in 
um, so that we can partner on the response. So we will see that report come through, typically reach out to the reporter and, and start talking through what steps they've already taken, what we know about the student impacted, and you know wrap the family in as quickly as we can into the, um, to the conversation, what we know about the offender and wrap their family into the conversation as quickly as possible. And then we start talking about what, first and foremost, what does the victim or the target need right away as far as safety and and support. And then sometimes that looks like a restorative conversation. Sometimes that looks like uh, making sure there is some separation between the students involved. And then as we start to move into the restorative process to you know try to repair any harm done, uh, rebuild relationship, and then also educate um, the, the offending student when possible, we reach out to our community partners that we are engaged with in this work. Um, often that means they will be directly involved to the extent that families are aware and and give permission to be part of the process. Um, we connect closely with Eric and Eric's team, some trained staff to support the follow-up conversations. Okay, we've said the word restorative a lot of times already, and I'm not sure we've defined it. Eric, do me a favor, and let's define for our listeners, when we say restorative practices, what does that mean? What are we talking about? I think it's important for us to just put something in this right now so that people know and understand what it does mean as it relates to both the offender and the victim. Yeah, Yeah, the way we're choosing to interpret restorative practices, it's it's an opportunity for us to prioritize relationships and community within our schools with a focus on, you know, 80% of the work we're doing being preventative on how we kind of set up our schools, how we educate students on a tier one level. Um, If we do a lot of work at the beginning stages, we can respond appropriately if something occurs. And and I will say kind of an old school mentality as an administrator would be something bad happens, what's the consequence, right? Like that's a very easy and narrow path to follow as a leader. And I think we as leaders can do better. And so, you know, the concept of restorative practices is let's build into our community. Let's be thinking before and after these incidents um, and let's give them the appropriate weight they deserve. But let's not just focus on what punitive measure can I put in place? Because there's a lot of research out there that shows that these punitive measures alone don't really do a lot, but what can we do from an education standpoint to help our community grow? So does that mean that we're done suspending kids for weapons and, and uh, or like sexual assault? Um, does that mean that those, those kinds of violations no longer receive uh, suspensions? You know, people do ask that, and but it's absolutely not. Right? Those things, you know, there are crimes that occur. Um, in my role, I get to work with students that are adjudicated and in, you know, various placements and things like that, too. So those are, you know, those, those high-end major things. They definitely have punitive consequences that go with them. And looking way down the road, if a student is in, you know, a different placement, we can still try to restore them later. But that doesn't mean someone's going to do something egregious and major and not have a consequence as well. It's just shifting that mindset to say, what else can we do before, during, and after to kind of help everyone you know, move forward positively from any type of situation? So what would you say if, if folks, I'm curious, the, we've been going this direction actually many years before I got here, to the folks that are saying right now out there in our community that are saying we're being too tolerant um, and then we're letting kids get away with things instead of instead of holding them accountable and giving them consequences like you just mentioned, what would you say to that? Yeah, and I, I think to, to that kind of mindset it's i think there's a lot of assumption that just putting a kid at home for three days is really going to make a change those consequences alone are meaningless for the most part Um, if a student does something and then we send them home 
to an environment that maybe is not taking it to that level. It's three days off from school. I would deal with students sometimes and they made a mistake and they would know that we're going to probably talk about this and have a lot of different responses. And the first thing they would say is just suspend me, just send me home. I don't want to deal with with all the other things that we're going to go through. So a student may have a school level consequence, but we're going to do more. We're going to do more, you know, to kind of move forward from that incident. So it's, you know, I, I hear what you're saying with that, but it's, that's assuming that that's going to work or that does anything, but we're doing the hard work by actually doing more. So what I'm hearing from you is it's possible that restorative practices sometimes are restorative practices and the consequences yeah, when, when it's warranted. Okay, so, so, so much of this is after something happens, you started talking about prevention work a little bit there, Eric. I want us to kind of veer a little different direction on this right now and, and talk about what's the, you know, most of what we've talked about so far is about after something happens in uh, interaction between two, two students or staff members or staff and student. Um, what are we doing? You mentioned tier one instruction. I'm not sure all of our listeners know what that means. What is, what is a, what do you, when you talk about prevention and how restorative practices intersect with our role as how we're preventing someone from ever experiencing these in the first place. Talk a little bit about that work and also define what tier one instruction means. Yeah, and, and thank you. I think in schools we often speak in like acronyms or concepts. So, so I would say when, when we look at schools, uh, when you use the term tier one, it's looking at what do we do for every student. So if your child is a student in one of our schools, what can we expect every single student to have an interaction with. And um, I think our school counselors, our student success instructors, our teachers in general are doing a really good job of leading, you know, through advisories or through, you know, school-wide initiatives and efforts, this concept of like every student belongs in our school. Here's here's how we treat each other. If at Bend High, we are lava bears. Here's what we do together. Okay, Eric, that all makes sense to me. But what I would, what I think I want to hear from you is if a parent gets a call from one of our administrators at school and said, hey, there was a there was a conflict today between your student and another student, and we're going to do a restorative conversation with those two students tomorrow. Are you okay with that, or are you interested in participating as a parent in that? I think what I'd like to know is that's new language for so many of our parents. What what does that even mean? Like, what could a parent expect to hear if that was the call they got? Yeah, and I, I love that we're getting to be this specific because I think a lot of our parents need to hear this too. And so without being too specific, I, I can remember situations where let's say two kids are playing basketball at lunch. Uh, they get really aggressive and they throw each other on the ground and they start wrestling. Like it's turning into a physical conflict. I think one way to deal with that would be like, hey, you had a conflict on our campus. You're both going home for a day. You're both suspended. Get out of here. Let's see if tomorrow is better, right? I don't know how much that helps. A restorative response to that would be, I have a good relationship with both of these students. The parents and I have communicated in the past. If we're talking to both parents and say, you know, we could either send the kids home or I can put them in a room together. They're gonna work on some assignments together. They both have a science class together. They're gonna get that project done. And then during that conversation, myself or the counselor is gonna say, two hours ago at recess, you're about to punch each other in the face. You're rolling around, kind of having an incident on the gym floor. Now you're not. Like what what changed and, and what can we do next time to make sure that doesn't happen again? You know. And, then they've proven through their collective work throughout the day that they're not going to fight every time they see each other. And then the next day we get to move forward. And, and I think that level of thinking uh, can be replicated in different situations. But to me, that is a good restorative practices example. 
We have, in one situation that was reported through our bias incident uh, process, we had a, a student who was feeling like, and, and a couple of her peers, her friends who who were involved, she was feeling like there was a staff member who um, was targeting her in discipline conversations because of the color of her skin. She felt called out and reported feeling upset about that. And so the bias incident report was made. And in our... Um, in our approach to supporting her and resolving the situation, um, her family was, and the family of, the, of her friends involved, were willing to have her um, participate in this process. The staff member was also very willing, and so um, we had a trained person um, who's, who's trained at facilitating these conversations come sit down with the group in, in literally in a circle and walked the group through some conversation sharing their, um, their own perspectives and experiences. And it ended up being a really beneficial conversation where the student could share um, why she was feeling uh, targeted. The staff member could share why they, what their intention had been and, and got to hear directly from the student, the student's voice. Um, and they, all of them walked out feeling um, much more connected. Um, the, you know, um, it was an eye-opening conversation for both the staff member and the student and left with some shared commitments as far as how to treat each other and, and um, how the student wanted to be communicated with and the staff member felt, you know, much more confident moving forward in, in um, relationship with that student. So that's another example of just a way that um, we've, we've used the circle process. That was a great example and that makes a lot of sense to me. But what do we do and or what happens if, if the victim just doesn't have any interest uh, in being uh, a part of a conversation with the person that, that harmed them? Um, I can think of multiple incidences where I've talked with parents this year about their their student doing that doing absolutely nothing wrong and not wanting to be around that person what do we do then yeah and and i think it's it's really appropriate to ask that question as a starting point because we we should not force someone into a restorative conversation especially if they're a victim of something if they don't want to participate uh, i think that re-traumatizes people and that's that's wholly inappropriate and we have to protect the rights of people in these situations um, so if those situations occur, we continue to, to make sure we work through the situation appropriately based on what's you know, allowed in our district. And we can educate someone independently versus having a greater conversation. But I, I, I love that you asked that question because we, someone was harmed in this situation and we need to put their, their rights and their feelings above all else. So what's the follow-up if we do have students that are victim, or, or staff members for that matter, that are victimized? What are the follow-ups that we're, we're doing uh, or we're putting into place to make sure their needs are being met? Yeah, I think that's an area that we are getting better at and probably needs continued attention just um, in full transparency as we develop our systems. Sometimes we, uh, a, a student or an individual who's been the target of a biased incident who doesn't want to sit in a conversation with the offending individual, sometimes Sometimes the target will um, agree to or be interested in a written uh, sharing sharing their perspective or their experience in written format. Um, so we look for diverse ways and methods that um, people might be interested in engaging in that conversation. And if they just aren't ready to, um, we let them know that if and when they are ready to circle back and engage, we are um, ready to, to pick that conversation up when they want to. No matter what, if they don't participate in a, a restorative conversation specifically, we still need to ensure that their um, safety and and well-being is being protected and so that might look like connecting with the student and family or the staff member 
um, and asking what their needs are. Sometimes it's finding their safe and trusted adult in the building to have that conversation with them and letting them identify what um, safety looks like and feels like moving forward. And then uh, reminding them of our processes and, and policies and you know to the extent that we can share steps that we are, are taking to respond and, um, and trying to keep that communication loop open with them. So I like where we're at with this right now, where we're talking about students and how students are really at the center of this. Um, just earlier today, I was in uh, one of our high schools. Um, I was invited to speak to one of our, our social justice clubs in one of our high schools. And they have strong feelings about a lot of things. So I'd like to hear from both of you how we're, how we're hearing from students and what are, what, are, what are students' roles in this as we go to, to transform culture in our schools or, or, or nuance culture maybe is even a better way to think about it towards the positive so that more kids do feel comfortable and safe in our schools. What is the role of the student? What, is the, what, what do they carry? Um, what do they have to offer? Personally, I'm a, a strong advocate for, I, I think every school should try to figure out some way to get a student council or student voice because they, they kind of know what's occurring in the schools. And so just having a vehicle you know, to speak to administration, to, st- to speak to teachers, um, whenever I've kind of done site visits or talked to administrators about a, you know, a culture issue or something like that, that's been the first recommendation that's come about. And then drilling down to an individual student level, like whenever students are needing to talk about something big, just making sure to let them know we appreciate you so much that you came out and talked about this and like not just lip service like I'm so happy that you talked about this because you're valuable and I really respect the fact that you're standing up for what you think is right. Yeah I totally agree with everything Eric just said. I guess I would just add students are um, they are the center of this work they're why we're all here and so you know when they have feedback for us it's their feedback we all need to listen to first and foremost and then um and then beyond listening, respond to um, right away. And so I think their role in the work is is letting us know how we're doing as the adults around them and where we can get better. Um, and then I'd like to think of our role as microphone. We aren't voices for the students, we're the microphone for their voice. And so helping them develop their leadership as we, um, as we design supports. And it, we have seen so many students um, in different clubs and activities, individual students, who are already leading this work with their peers and in our community. And so um, really we're trying to keep up with them, I think. Mm, that's, that's powerful. Thank you both. Uh, the, you know, when it comes right down to it, are elevating what our students are telling us they need so that they do feel safe is ultimately what we're trying to accomplish with this policy and, and quite frankly, all of the other policies. So I appreciate you both for, for taking that time on that. Okay, we've been finishing up the podcast now with uh, the same question we ask all of our participants. This is, it's like I said we, earlier, we're recording this in mid to late April and uh, just wanting to know from both of you, what is giving you hope right now? I guess students are always my, my go-to answer, um, but right now, right in this moment, I think our families are really... Um, I've been fortunate to be engaged in conversation with um, some family groups and some individual families, and um, I just so appreciate the um, partnership and um, and um, advocacy that many of our families are engaging in with us. So they're giving me hope. And Kinsey, I let you go first because I thought we'd say a similar thing, so I wanted you to have. So I, I think for me, my my real answer is always students too, and, and the students that we get to work with, and just seeing how resilient they are and and what they overcome in their lives. Um, it's it's always hopeful, and it, it lets you 
realize how important it is to come to work every day. So it's always going to be students and, and families with me. All right, folks, uh, tough topic, but really, really important for us to engage in and uh, look for more from this uh, as, we, as we continue to dive in. At some point, we're going to be asking students what it's like to be a student in our schools and getting their feedback and, and putting it out as part of one of our podcasts. And so uh, I'd like to thank my guests today, Kenzie Martin and Eric Powell. Um, they're both uh, doing just amazing work in our district to help, uh, to help us create the cultures and support the work of our building administrators in creating those environments in our schools that we would desire for every, every one of our kids. All right, this is our podcast for Ben Lapine Schools. If you're pleased with the work we're doing on these podcasts, please remember to subscribe and share your review on your podcast provider. Also share them on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Additionally, if there are topics you'd love for us to tackle, please send us a note at podcast at bend.k12.or.us. Let us know your thoughts. We are always grateful for the feedback. Thanks for listening to The Soup's On. Please remember to always support public education. Mm-hmm.